Hello, and welcome to Marathon Swim Stories, where we connect with marathon swimmers around the world to find out how they got started, what makes them tick, and why they keep going. It's where we explore the human side of the superhuman feats of endurance swimmers, the connections that we have with each other, our support crew, and the waters we cross. If you've ever stood at the edge of a body of water and wondered what it would be like to swim to the other side, you're in good company. I'm Shannon Keegan, marathon swimmer, water relationship coach, and founder of Intrepid Water, where I virtually teach swimming freedom. Freedom to get started, shed the confines of the pool, or your preconceived notions of what's possible. Find out more at intrepidwater.com. After a severe heart attack in 2016, Stephen Munitones was in a coma for a week. They lowered his body temperature in hopes of preserving function, but set expectations with his family that he may have severe neurological damage. This was part of Steve's marathon swim story that he shared with us in February of 2021. He also discussed his recovery, use of katsu, and return to swimming. Be sure to check it out if you haven't already. Today, Steve tells us how taking kids to swim in the ocean during the pandemic inspired him to seek out an open water swimming challenge, which led him to SCAR, where he walked away with the coveted belt buckle. I love how Steve, the open water swimming ambassador, shares the imposter syndrome that so many of us, myself included, feel at pre-race dinners. It's a great reminder that we are all human. I hope you enjoy today's deep dive into SCAR 2022 with Steve Minotones. Hey, Stephen, thank you for joining me again. I'm so excited to talk to you. It's always a joy to talk to you. Yeah, the pleasure is mine. (laughs) I wanted to dig in a little bit to your recent experience before it gets to, it's about a month ago now, right? Yes. At SCAR. I was trying to figure out where we were at the end of your story. I think you were just kind of maintaining swimming, just kind of as a part of your day-to-day. So tell us, you know, kind of what you were up to and what made you decide to do SCAR this year. Yeah, I think the last hard swim I did was like in 1992 or three. Okay, so we're talking 30 years ago. (laughs) Yeah, but I've been swimming with the same group of swimmers uh, in the same lane, doing the same thing for the last 30 years. We do about 2,000 yards and we enjoy each other. We've seen each other's get married, have kids, the kids go on to college, et cetera. So same group of kids. And then COVID happened. Pools were shut down. So I took my last two children, I have four, but the last, the youngest two, um, they're in high school. So I started taking them to the beach as a alternative to doing nothing. This was in March and April, a few years ago. So March and April in Southern California, water temperature is, you know, hovering in the late high 50s to low 60s. So 14 to 16 degrees Celsius for 
us non-Americans here. <laughs> so it was a little nippy, but we got used to it and we had fun and we had all of their teammates come and join us at the beach. So that continued on and off for about two years. I hadn't really been in the ocean other than body surfing or other things. And I enjoyed swimming with the young kids. And then uh, I decided I should probably do something. And so uh, I looked at SCAR, or actually I Googled and SCAR was the first thing that came up on my Google feed. So I go, okay, I'll do that. So wait, it's been 30 years. Why did you decide you wanted to do an event? (laughs) Um, I thought it was fun. I mean, I thought it would be fun. I didn't know what event I would do. If the first thing would have popped up into my Google feed would have been, let's say, the a peer-to-peer swim or around a peer swim or lake swim, I probably would have did that. But SCAR came up. That was fate. And again, I I knew of SCAR. I've written about SCAR. I've been amazed about the people who go to SCAR. But I really didn't look into SCAR, at least for myself. And, and um, then I think it was November 1st, whatever the day was to apply. I applied. I can't say enough about Kent Nicholas. I've traveled around the world. Um, I've been to pro races, the Olympics, uh, you name it. And what he does and what his small group of people, volunteers do in those four lakes in Arizona at this time of the year is beyond description, beyond incredible. The logistical nightmare that they have to face with people and kayaks and escorts and swimmers and People who uh, don't make the swim, people who don't even want to start for whatever reason is a logistical nightmare and he pulls it off. So anyway, I committed to myself and I uh, committed, uh, well, you know, entered. And so I had to figure out how to actually swim those distances at that temperature, at that altitude. And, and that was the fun part. So I enjoyed thinking about how in the world can I at this point, 30 years of about 2,000 yards a day, get to the point where I could finish a swim like SCAR. And I just, I asked people who had done SCAR before, Ned Dennison, Jamie Tout, um, last year's winner, uh, Michael Rice, who actually, I used to write about his mother. Is that right? Yeah, his mother (laughs) was his, uh, Gail Rice was his escort last year. He won the race, almost beat Grace Vanderbilt's record. And I didn't put two and two together until I was speaking with Mike and how he trains and his sets. And and so I sought a lot of advice about people who were there. I read everything I used to that I wrote about SCAR. I I read other people about SCAR. So it was really interesting. It was like this giant puzzle piece that I had to figure out just basic things, how to get stronger, how to to acclimate to the water, um, which I had a a little bit because, again, in COVID, I was – swimming in the ocean with my my own kids and and their friends. So all these things came together and it was a really interesting thing. I obviously I love the open water and I just said, "Okay, I've been writing about a lot of people for many years and uh now I'll I'll actually see they've all inspired me, everybody. It was it was really cool being on a pontoon boat with uh Sarah Thomas and you know, I learned more about her and and just sitting by the side of a, a lake and talking with all the triple crowners and ice milers and all these people that I'd, I'd written about, but I'd actually never met in person and just understanding where they're from, how they train, what they do, what they eat, what they think about. 
was absolutely fascinating to me. And then, of course, watching from the distance what Kent does to get all these kayaks and boats in place for this pretty incredible four-day adventure was, uh, was a real joy. Yeah. Yeah. The camaraderie is amazing at SCAR. You know, there's international people come and they're just like, I've never been to anything like this before. Cause it's, you know, you're just, you're kind of like airdropped, you know, not really. We all get there however we get there, but then you're just immersed in it. And it's pretty amazing to get that experience. I'm really glad that it came up in your Google search. I'm curious what your search terms were. (laughs) Open water swimming. (laughs) And SCAR came up first. (laughs) Well, you know, In my own feed, because I've written so much about SCAR over the years, and then I've written about many of the people who've done SCAR many times, who knows why. I was really worried. In fact, I don't remember when. It was probably two or three months into uh, my own training when I read, I believe, an article about Samrick Thompson, or maybe she wrote it, and she had mentioned that the water was 52 in one of the lakes. So, you know, 11 degrees Celsius or so. And I said, I, I can handle for a certain period of time, you know, mid fifties, upper fifties, but low fifties is way out of my ballpark. And I don't have enough time to train to acclimate to that temperature. And, and certainly I didn't even want to get at that level. So I wrote to, to Kent and I said, yeah, thank you very much for allowing me to enter the race, but I have to pull out because there's no need for me to go into the race knowing. And I know everybody, you know, it, what's amazing is the mindset of people at, at SCAR and, and, you know, of your audiences, if you believe it, you will achieve it. You know, if you put your mind to it, you will do it, et cetera, et cetera. But there is a limit. Uh, it's a reasonable limit, at least in my book. And maybe I'm putting limitations on myself, but That's right. a, low 50s for me, you know, 10, 11, 12 degrees is not in my wheelhouse. And he said, oh, don't worry about it. Things happen. And it was only that it was only cold for a short distance. You can do it. So I'll see you in, (laughs) I'll see you in April. And so, I mean, it was, it's that kind of um, positive reinforcement that we get from everybody. Kent's volunteers on the boat, his wife, uh, uh, his old high school and grade school friends that come up and, Uh, do everything from singing songs and playing the guitar at the welcome dinner to hauling kayaks and buoys in and out of the water. So everything actually, it was a perfect storm in a very positive way. You know, I was able to get back into open water swimming. It was a real challenge. I I really didn't know in November when I started training how I was going to achieve those distances, but I would speak with Hank Wise, who's done seven Catalina Channel swims and Ned Dennison and and all these people. And I got bits of information from them. And and uh, I just took off little bite-sized chunks of distance and it all came together. During your training between, so it was November to April, the one crisis of confidence where you're like, I can't do this. It's going to be too cold, Kent. And he gives you the, no, no, you got this. Was there any other point in your preparations that you just kind of had the cold feet, I want to pull out moments? (laughs) No, actually, it was um, the way I looked at it. The thing that scared me wasn't the distance, wasn't the competition, wasn't anything except the cold water. And I actually got... um, I received a water temperature in Apache Lake. So the third day three. And at the time I looked, it was 43 degrees. So we're talking six degrees Celsius. 
And that's way, way out. And this is a, a month before. And I remember talking to Hank Wise, who I swim with in the pool. And he said, I go, Hank, he goes, how's training going? I said, oh, it's going well, but 43 degrees, you know, six degrees, that's impossible. Nobody can do that. And he says, don't worry about it. Forget it and just keep on training. Don't think about water temperature. Put it in a drawer somewhere. Don't look at the water temperature. And I go, you know, that's a good thing to think about. And then all my other things, again, I hadn't done more than 2,000 yards in a long time. And I was adding 500 meters every week or every few days. So, you know, I went from 22,000 yards to 2,500 meters to 3,000 meters, you know, and I was, I was going up and I remember Hank Wise, his, his master group has a uh, 100 100s at, at Christmas. And I was going, God, if I can get to 100 100s at Christmas, that's pretty good. And Hank and I, you know, we did 100 100s and I felt pretty good. And I also learned something else from Hank. Hank, when he was training for Catalina, he doesn't do any hydration at all. He just trains. And so his longest training swim uh, a few years ago was like five and a half hours, like nothing. Wow. <laughs> and, and I go, why do you do that? He goes, well, you know, just putting stress on the body. And, and he had a few other uh, bits and pieces. And I was going, wow. So I started to train with no hydration, no, no feeding. In fact, I used to purposely eat dinner, drink uh, some water before going to bed, wake up, and then used to do a three-hour swim. I was so dehydrated. I was so hungry, but I figured, okay, maybe I will experience that in SCAR sometime. So if I am dehydrated, I'll be able to deal with it. If I do get hungry and there's no food, I'll be able to deal with it. That actually occurred one time during the race and, and I dealt with it. So as Ned Dennison does, and who was teaching me at the Cork Distance Week, I've never been there, but I've written about it. You know, he was always doing this mind-body confusion stuff. So I was purposely taking Ned's concept of mind-body confusion and instilling it in my own training in my own way. And um, I remember in Apache, about four and a half hours in, the night before, my kayaker and I, Chris Morgan from Boston, we had no idea how to get to Apache. All we saw, we were driving, 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 and all we saw was this dirt road. Well, our dinner that night was a Circle K, a, a gasoline station in, in Arizona. We had our dinner at Circle K. So I had, I don't know, some $2 burrito and um, I think an ice cream bar. <laughs> and then the next morning before Apache, I had, um, I think I had some Starburst basically. Oh, goodness. <laughs> so I was in this Apache and we're swimming along and at four and a half hours, I was just, ah, I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. My body's given up. And I told Chris at that time, I said, Chris, I just need to do 50 strokes of breaststroke. I can't keep up this pace and I need some food. So he throws me some Starburst. I've eaten Starburst probably three times in the last 40 years, but this Starburst tasted unbelievably well, <laughs> sugar kicked in and I was ready to go. So all of that mind body confusion stuff that I learned from, from Ned Dennison, I incorporated it and it works. I was basically depending on the experience and knowledge of the marathon swimming community and just incorporating it into my own training. And it absolutely works. 
yeah, I feel like I do something similar just in my own search talking to marathon swimmers. It's great to have so many people so willing to share their stories with us, right? Yeah. So how about you break a little bit of your prep down and then I want you to take us there. So you said you kind of, it was this puzzle. It was fun to work out. What were the components of your training that you want to divulge? (laughs) Yeah. So the first one was strength. It doesn't matter how fast you go or how slow you go. If you're going to swim over 60 kilometers over four days, you just need to have the musculature to turn over your arms and kick your legs and turn your your head side to side. So your arms are going in a rotation, your legs are going up and down, your neck is going side to side. And my body wasn't prepared for 60 kilometers plus of that. And so I knew I had to build up my strength to do that. And that's why every three or four days, or certainly every week, I increase by 500 meters or so my daily training. So my daily training was started 2000 yards, then 2500, then 3000, etc. And uh, I knew I couldn't get into a 10k swim right away. And I did it very, very gradually. Fortunately, I had a I had some benchmarks. And one benchmark was at 100 100s. Uh, my next benchmark was actually um, 50 200s at a faster and so I, I had all these different benchmarks. I wanted to build up my strength gradually. So that's increasing. And I wanted to decrease my swimming time. So I wanted to get faster. So at the same time, I was increasing my distances. I was decreasing my intervals or improving my pace. And that was also extremely gradual. So I would say to myself, okay, today I'm going at a 130 pace per 100 meters. Tomorrow or next week, I hope to get 129. Next week, I have that 128. And my goal time for the speed distance or the speed part of my training was uh, what I learned from Penny Lee Dean, who had the English Channel and, and Catalina Channel records way back in the 70s. She always trained at a 120 pace per 100 meters. That was her, her thing. Her toughest workouts were a 36,000 meter swim in a 50 meter pool, which she held a 120 pace entire way. And I thought I have to have this perfect median between water temperature. I have to be, you know, cause that water temperature, yes, it wasn't 52, but it started in the, in the mid or high fifties and then it gradually warmed. So I had to have this balance between how am I acclimated with speed? And I know the faster that I swam, the warmer I would be, but I couldn't maintain obviously a 200 meter pace over whatever, 20 kilometers or however way we're, however far we were going that day. And so my goal was to be at least at Penny Dean's pace. Now, I wasn't going to swim a 36,000 meter workout. <laughs> and my farthest was 14,000 meters. But as every week, fortunately, I had a Garmin watch and, and the Garmin, you know, when I used to train way back in the 70s and 80s, that, you know, you just had the old analog pace cloud right. <laughs> um, yeah. and everything was in your head. Now everything is in the watch or in the cloud. So it makes it a lot easier. Very interesting. And it was interesting for me to see the, the very granular data, which was very motivating. So it didn't matter whether in you know October, November, December of last year that I wasn't at Penny Dean's pace because I was getting there gradually, literally second by second. 
and we're talking about pool, but also the open water. I have a very specific course that I, I swam with at in Huntington beach where I live in Southern California. And so strength was just swimming the yards, just swimming the meters. Uh, speed was a function of me being able to swim faster and hold it. And all of my workouts from the time I jumped in the water to the time I got out, I had two goals in mind. First goal was to swim the same exact pace, except for the last 200 meters. Ah. And the last 200 meters of whatever workout I did had to be faster than any other point in the swim. So it was basically, I was, I was finishing with what I thought was a sprint. And I did that throughout. So if I was going at a 128 pace for two or three hours, that's what I would do. If I, when I got better and better and better, uh, then every single day I would say to myself, okay, today is a 124, today is a 122, today is a 120, today is a 118. And those were my goals. As long as the last 200 meters was faster than any other previous 200 meters. I didn't always do it, but I held pretty steady. So that was strength and speed. Stamina was a combination of that. So as I was swimming more yards and getting faster, obviously my stamina was increasing. I found a, a pretty interesting phenomenon that probably pretty good is I was losing weight. However much I was eating, I was losing weight and my pants would not fit. You know, I wish I would have sort of done all kinds of physiological metrics, but right. <laughs> like you, I have kids and jobs and everything, you know, can only do so much, but that would have been interesting. But I definitely, my waist size um, decreased. So I went from a, you know, size 32 swimsuit on the men's side to a size 30. I, throughout the day, I kept on having to yank up my pants. <laughs> and so, you know, as we get older, I guess losing belly fat is a good thing. So that was a benefit. And then I, and then I realized when I was in SCAR, the tremendous advantage that I had living in Southern California, I had a tremendous advantage. I mean, you have people in Boston. I had a classmate, actually a college classmate of mine, Martha Wood, who you, you've talked to, you know, now she's an ice smiler. And of course she, she told me she swam throughout the winter in Boston. Unbelievable. But there, and even though she is an ice smiler, there's only so long that you can swim when the water temperatures, you know, under five degrees or in the thirties. And so poor Martha was spending much of her time in a 25 yard indoor pool. Whereas I was very lucky. And even though I felt the water was cold many days, I was still able to get out in the ocean. And the other thing that I did in the ocean that was, it was fun for me because I've been body surfing and surfing all my life is I would swim within the surf zone. So I live on the coast here in Southern California and there's waves and sometimes the waves are fairly big. And I swam between the shoreline and the surf break. So I was swimming along the coast and sometimes I had to go out because there's plenty of surfers. But so every five to 15 to 18 seconds, depending on the day, there was a wave crashing over me. And it accomplished two things. One, it kept me totally focused because there were some times when I lost focus and a wave would just wipe me out, literally wipe me out. I, I wouldn't see it coming. And all of a sudden it'd crash on me. I'd lose my goggles. I lose my cap and I would have, I would get out that day. I remember walking probably around three kilometers. And one day <laughs> I was swimming along the, the shore 
And I, I just lost focus for a second. A wave crashed on me. I lost everything. And I just walked back. Oh, it, was, it was like the walk of shame. <laughs> I was walking in Southern California with Speedos <laughs> on a nice Saturday where, you know, nobody in Southern California walks around in Speedos. Right, in like January. I was, I was just holding my head down. Right. Yeah. yeah. Now, if I were amongst, you know, marathon swimmers, it wouldn't have mattered. But wouldn't have been, right. No, I hear you. <laughs> not in Southern California, not in Huntington Beach. So. Right. So it, that was good though. I was, uh, so it got me used to swimming in very, very turbulent water. And because I'd heard from the SCAR veterans that there was a lot of um, turbulence, a lot of oncoming wind, and I wanted to prepare myself for that turbulence. So when I did hit SCAR and there was turbulence, it wasn't close to what I was had trained in. And then there were swimmers, you know, whether they came from Ireland or Boston, like Martha or, or other places who I realized in April or leading up to April, they didn't have that experience because the water's too cold or, or even if they could handle the water, like uh, Martha, they couldn't swim for long periods. And I could, so that was a, a huge, huge advantage that I had living in Southern California. What is swim freedom? It's the freedom to start swimming when you don't think you have the skill, ability, or time. The freedom to swim with ease. The freedom to enjoy your time in the water. The freedom to swim further than you ever thought possible. What's holding you back? Let's talk about it. Shannon at IntrepidWater.com so it's speed, strength, stamina, uh, variability. What any other components of your training that you were yeah. working on? And so up? along this, there were two things. What you know, there are a lot of things. One was the mindset. So I enjoyed sharing information or asking questions via email or text, whatever. You know, again with um, Hank Wise, Ned Dennison, Jamie Tout, uh, Michael Rice, uh, Stefan Renke, and Honolulu Hon- was a great help. He's done SCAR many times and he's done a lot of channel swims. And I, I realized how mentally tough he is, you know, to live in Hawaii where I used to live too, and enjoy the tropical water there and then go to the mainland or go to Europe, wherever he's going and having to deal with water for me to deal with 58 degree water, you know, that's in my wheelhouse for him to go from high seventies or 80 degree water all the way down to that was mind boggling to me. And I realized what he did and how he did it. So he and I were in the same heat, you know, there are three heats in scar and uh, it was at Canyon Lake. That was the second day, day two, people were jumping in the water and they were gasping. Oh, it's cold. And I was like, Oh man, I wish I wouldn't have heard that. But Stephen, Stephen and I would always be the last ones off the pontoon boat. And I would wait purposely because I wanted to minimize the time that I'm in the water. And Stefan would, would be on the boat. He'd be putting on his cap, putting on his goggles. And then he would say to himself, and I don't think he meant anybody to hear, but I heard. And he was going cold, cold, Ooh. cold. He, he was like oh, convincing himself yeah. that he was going to enter cold water. It wasn't dramatic. It was just a sort of a self-meditative mantra. And then he jumped in the water 
And then he says, cold. So it was like, it's going to be cold. I can deal with it. He jumps in the water and then he, he realizes it's cold. I'm here. He put his head down and he swam. And I was like, oh my God, if this guy from Honolulu on the island of Oahu can deal with water so efficiently, so psychologically profound, how he, he was literally convincing himself that it was going to be cold and he jumped in the water and it was cold and he dealt with it and he wasn't hyperventilating. He didn't yell out. He didn't scream. There was no hysteria. It would just, I got it. I got to finish this. I got a job to do. I came all the way here and I'm going to get it done and stuff like that. Really small things like that. I observed everybody and it was really inspirational. So when I saw him do that, I was like, I have no excuse to wimp out here. So those are the kind of things that that acclimatization of the cold, both mentally and physically acclimatization to turbulent water. In my case, I, it was quite lucky. And then the, the last thing, and you know, this is my own technology that I learned in Japan is a thing called katsu. It means additional pressure. I just put these bands on my arms and legs before and after every bout of, of swimming that I do. It doesn't matter if it's a 30 minutes or three hours or, or after each scar. In fact, I kept them in my dry bag at scar. And as soon as I finished each race in scar, I'd get on the boat, I'd put on my bands. And, and basically what it does is it, it removes the metabolic waste. It removes the lactic acid out of your muscles very quickly. And then the lactate dissipates around the bloodstream. So uh, you feel refreshed uh, very quickly. You're still fatigued, but you don't have that sort of lethargic, my muscles are heavy, I don't want to take another stroke uh, feeling. It's really uh, recovery. So I did that after, before and after every single practice. And I've been doing that for years, but this really, really, really helped. And, and uh, so all of those things were this puzzle piece that I, that I put together and, and it worked. You know, I didn't know it was going to work, but it did work. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So take us to Scar. Oh, so I get there and there's many Scar veterans. People have been there before, but I've written about these people. Yeah. <laughs> you know, not that I memorized everybody's events, but I know many of them. And I, I walk into the Patty Herman does a very nice, uh, very beautiful pre-swim uh, get together a pre-race swim. It's at the start of the day one uh, lake and, and she greets everybody. She gives everybody's t-shirts and caps. And I'm in awe. I am in total awe. Like, oh my God, you're the triple crowner. Or, oh my God, you're the ice smiler. And it was amazing to me. And of course, everybody's talking and everybody's talking about, oh, you know, when are you going over to Dover? And, you know, when's your Catalina? And, you know, uh, when are you doing the double around the Manhattan? And I'm like, oh my God, these people are serious. Right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely serious. And here I am going, gee, six months ago, I'm swimming 2000 yards with my, my buddies. And we're just sort of, sometimes we're social kicking and sometimes we're using hand paddles. And, <laughs> and so anyway, that was really intimidating just meeting and seeing everybody for the first time. And there were some people I had, I had met over the years. So that was nice to see them. But I, I was basically just very quiet and just looking around, just in awe of everybody. And we got in the lake, the lake was comfortable. Uh, the first lake and I go, Oh, it feels sort of good. 
being out here. And, you know, we warmed up the next morning. The logistics of every single swim was like beyond. So you, you generally gather at the end of the race and people are by rental cars. Some people are carpooling, et cetera. I mean, there was one guy who actually camped out at the end of the race in his car, uh, Michael Riley, great guy. So you gather and, and Kent divides the whole group. Um, there were 61 people who had, had entered the swim. Unfortunately, some people got COVID. Some people, I don't know, for what for a variety of life reasons, didn't get there. But there's about 48 people who eventually swam. And we all gathered. Then Kent divides you up into three groups. And then the three groups get shuttled down the river to a staging area. And this is kayakers and swimmers. Then in the staging area, the swimmers disrobe, put on their whatever, desitin, landlin, put on their cap, goggles, earplugs, stretch a bit. The kayakers do the same. The kayakers have their dry bags. The kayakers have their feeding, put them on their kayaks. Now, early in the morning, Kent has already taken all these kayaks over there. Oh, so wow. you know, his yeah. day starts at 2 a.m. Right. So probably... He just doesn't sleep. He just doesn't sleep for four days. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And so you're in the staging area, which is closer to the, I would say maybe 80% to the start. And then the swimmers just in your swim trunks and goggles and the cap jump in a pontoon boat and your cart or you're escorted to the start and the kayakers kayak to there. And so you do that four days in a row. But in day one, I was in awe of everybody. Day two, I was in awe of the lake because these pontoon boats, they're not fast, high-speed boats. They're sort of moseying along very comfortably. (laughs) And when you go slowly over the course on a marathon swim course, you're like, oh, my God, how long is this swim? I didn't want to look at the course. Just drop me off in the start and let me swim. But in this case... You literally go very slowly down the entire course. So, <laughs> you know, you're gathering it. I forget the first day. Maybe you're gathering at 7 a.m. But the start isn't till 10 o'clock. Uh, in my case, maybe 9.30, 10, 10.30. So in that three hours prior to your swim, you are actually doing something. You're waiting. You're in a boat. You're getting ready. You're, there's a lot of action that's happening before then. And then you get carted to the near the start of the swim and Kent says, okay, everybody in the water, you jump in every single one of the lakes, the water was cold in the beginning, without a doubt. Now, of course, Martha Wood, Elaine Howley, our Irish friends, for them, it isn't a big deal. For Stefan Rinke, myself, it was a big deal. But we were told and we believe that you swim a little bit through the cold and event, the water eventually warmed up, which it did. It was unbelievable. And then you swim down lake, uh, the first lake, uh, Lake Sawaru, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, I don't know. And that is, it is beauty the whole way. It's very much like uh, the same way that you are, that I was personally entranced by all of the sights and scenes around Manhattan Island. There was always something to see in the four lakes of Scar, there's always something to see. There are the cacti, there are the canyon walls. The clarity of the water is, is poor. It's a lot, you know, it's silt built up and you can't see much, but you know, you can see enough. There was never anything 
that was boring. It was always, oh, that's cool. Even if it was a mountain ridge that you saw and you would see it for three hours because it took you that long to swim <laughs> right. out, it was still, you saw the different um, shades of the canyon because as starting in the morning, the sun would rise and then the shades of the canyon walls would literally change. You know, they'd go from dark to less dark to, you know, a granite color to a, a reddish color and then it would go on. So colors, shapes, uh, the size of the cacti were incredible. There, you know, there, I didn't know cactus would, could grow that big, but you know, there were 12 meter high cacti out there. And me being sort of always thinking creatively, maybe in a in a weird way, I always imagine all this all this cacti were actually the spectators. Like, yeah, the true. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> so that that was that was really fun, and and there was um, you know Apache helicopters from I guess a nearby Navy base came passing down really low, and that was cool to see. And throughout the entire swims, most of the time I could see another swimmer. I never felt it was a solo swim. Yes, it's a race, but really it was forty eight people who were doing solo swims. But really, there was always somebody in sight. And so you wind down this beautiful, beautiful lake and you get, you basically go from the start of the dam, one end of the dam to the other end of the dam. And that was day one. I finished. It was great. Kent had everything prepared. You know, you get out and there was some breakfast burritos there. There was cookies, there was beer, water, Gatorade, uh, fruit, you know, watermelon, grapes, bars. Um, and he really, that first day was a really, really welcomed experience. Again, me not doing anything for you know many decades, and all of a sudden the first thing you do, and and the logistics were incredible. Uh, the camaraderie was great. The the collegial atmosphere of everybody was just, hey, we're all in this together. It's going to be fun. Uh, very supportive. Very motivational. Very inspirational. Everybody all ages from the young boy who got an SV award to people in their sixties. And it was great to see that the kayakers all had various bits of advice. There was a lot of veterans, SCAR veterans there. So they sort of told us what to expect. And, um, but until you, you literally swim through it, you don't know exactly what to expect. And that was day one. And we repeated that four more days each day. I thought the course was even more majestic, more grandiose, uh, more intriguing. I couldn't imagine, like, how can you do better than day one? And then we got to day two and it was in many ways, more beautiful, more challenging, more satisfying to finish. And I was like, there's no way it could be better than that. <laughs> and then day three comes along and it was more challenging, more majestic, there was more camaraderie. I was like, how can, how can people become more friendly than they already are? They did. I don't know how. And then the last day, Lake Roosevelt, uh, that's the night swim. And Kent did something different this year. It wasn't a point to point. It was a, a triangle swim. And it was interesting because personally, I don't like swimming at night. I do swim at night, but I don't particularly like it. And I remember Kent is giving his last um, words always very inspirational, always very educational and sort of the pre-race technical talk. 
And he also wanted to acknowledge everybody, which he did his memory. Uh, and of course, he's a, an attorney. So I, I would imagine he has the skill that he knows all, you know, he's got names, he's got dates, he's got facts and figures, you know, at his fingertips. And, he, and he's giving accolades to everybody. And then I'm thinking, Kent, let's just start. Let's just <laughs> right. start because right now the sun is out yeah. and, uh, and it's going on and on and on. And the buoys are being said, and I, I'm starting to see the sun sun go down. I go, oh, I got to swim fast in the beginning because I want to minimize the amount of darkness that I have to swim because it, it's very much unlike Catalina Channel. You know, Catalina Channel crossings, you start at night and you swim, or if you're swimming from the island to the mainland, you still see the lights of Southern California. But out in the desert in Arizona, it's really dark. It's like they turned off the light and you can't see anything. And the thing that I always liked was when my kayaker, Chris, would say, he'd say, swim to the light, swim to the light. There was a light. Well, at night in this scenario, the light stayed the exact same illumination. And the, the, you know, I don't know what they call it, the number of candles or whatever, the, mm-hmm. the illumination and the size 100 meters away or two kilometers away. It stayed the same, same. size. <laughs> yeah. and, I, and I was like, and Chris was the first three days, he was very, very accurate on his estimations of where we were on the lake. So he would say, Steve, we got 2000 meters to go. And he was almost spot on. Or Steve, we're, you know, we're halfway. And, and he was very good. He had a laminated map that actually Liz Fry's sister, Peggy had, had given us, which I, Greatly appreciate. So he was always spot on. But at night, I figured, ah, Chris, you've never kayaked at night. Are you really accurate or not? And he was spot on. I don't know how he did it. So that was the night swim. And in between, you had the two lakes. The Canyon Lake was just, uh, that was, uh, that was interesting. In Canyon Lake, I always thought in dams, if this is where you're starting, this is the other end of the dam, I always thought the the water would flow down and then they would open up the flues here and the water would flow out and the water would always go in one with direction. With you, right? But with you in the water, <laughs> not, not against. Well, <laughs> when we were there, I remember I was at the staging area and I looked in the distance and I saw swimmers walking on shore and I go, oh, my first thought was, oh my God, it's so cold. They've already quit because I was looking from the staging area to the finish. I'm sorry, to the start. And I saw swimmers walking and I go, oh, I'm not looking forward to this because they're already quitting. They're already getting out and walking. And I didn't realize and nobody realized, including, including Kent, that on this particular day, instead of the water flowing normally and then being released down this part of the dam, what they did was they opened up these flues and the water was being drawn backwards. Oh, wow. So the water was, instead of flowing you know, up on my screen from left to right, it was actually going from right to left. And we were starting here and we had to swim against the flow of water. And Kent had warned us. He said, oh, you know, we haven't seen this, but it's going to be really hard and sprint like your life depends on it. And I was like, oh, man. So even when we jumped off the pontoon boat and we swam to the end of the lake, we were literally, I I could feel all of our bodies being sucked to the dam. 
That's nerve wracking. <laughs> yes. And so that was, that was an interesting start to that swim. So I, I know in my mind, I was expecting that particular swim, which is traditionally the shortest mm-hmm. or a short swim. And I was looking at the data from the last 10 years from scars. Okay. I should finish under three hours, maybe even 245. And boy, 245 just went around <laughs> and had another hour. And, and, but there was so much to see and so much to think about during the swim that time actually went by fast, much faster than before. And same thing in Apache, which was day three, I swam it in six, six and a half hours. And I haven't done a six and a half hour swim again in, in decades, but I was never bored. I was never worried about getting out. I bonked a little bit. I needed the starburst, but I wasn't concerned. There was just so much to think about, to look about, to do. And one of the things I remember in Apache, it was interesting. They have these beautiful, beautiful canyon walls, just gorgeous. And on that particular day, as normal, the wind goes was blowing against us. And I saw my kayaker was really digging deep really digging deep. He was struggling, to be honest with you. And Kent had told us before in the pre-race meeting that in this particular lake, the winds usually kick up and it's going to be a very difficult swim. And it's the longest of the four days. And he said, but for safety purposes, you have to stick with your kayaker. There's no question. Kayaker and swimmers cannot be separated. So I looked over at Chris and he said, Chris, let's let's swim near the canyon walls where I could see uh, the texture of the water was much flatter, much more tranquil than it was in the middle where it was choppy. And I had instructed Chris or I'd asked Chris before we start, let's go point to point. So let's minimize our distance. And he used to, he did a very great job taking me from point to point. But on this particular day, in these particular circumstances, I said, Chris, forget our previous strategy. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go where the water is more calm because I wanted him to be able to kayak at the pace that I wanted to swim. So we, we moved over. Obviously, we went off the straight line tangent and we created more distance for ourselves. But when we got to the shallow waters, I go, ah. Oh, the water is much warmer here ah, yeah. <laughs> than in the thing. So I said, Chris, let's just stay here for a while. So we went zigzagging around the canyon walls. And because they were zigzagging and because, you know, marathon swimmers were always taught, you know, don't lift up your head. Don't look ahead of us. Now, I'm the first person to always advise that. And I'm the first person to always look up. <laughs> look, I'm yeah. always looking up. I always know how much further that I have, even if, I'm wrong. I just want a mental picture. But around those zigzag uh, walls, because it was so comfortable, the water was warmer and it was very tranquil. I just got, oh, and I could see the bottom. It was very clear. And I was like, oh, this is so cool. And bam, I smashed into a buoy with my <laughs> head. The next time I sma- I ran into it with my hand. And then another time I smashed into the, the canyon wall. Oh, geez. <laughs> but that kept me, you know, every time I do, I smashed into something, it kept me occupied for another 15 minutes, just thinking about, God, I'm glad nobody saw me do that. <laughs> that would have been embarrassing. Did you know your kayak support before the event or you just matched up? Yeah, with- Chris, and, Chris and I worked together. We're colleagues. And he actually runs two short swims, open water swims in Boston, but he had never kayaked before. 
Oh, wow. But he's a coach. So he knew on a theoretical level what he needed to do, but he actually never, never did it before. But I know he's a, he's a competitive guy. And I said, Chris, you got to take me on the shortest line possible. (laughs) And he sure enough, you know, he did it and it was good. That's cool. With um, regard to the competition, did you have any, like, your sights set on winning going in? Or were you just like, ah, oh, we'll see what happens? No, no. I, you know, my, my goal is to finish. That was literally my goal to finish. Now, after the first day when I finished, because I had passed many people along the way, I thought to myself, because I, I didn't, I just, oh, that's number one, number two. I, I wasn't counting. I was saying, ah, I passed maybe 30 people. So I'm probably in the top 10. And I go, wow, that's, that's really good. I was fine with that. I was totally fine with that. I was not top 10. That's not bad. That's pretty good. And then that night, a man in California, Southern California, who I occasionally train with, Steve Sutton, texted me and said, hey, great job. And he saw the results before I did. Yeah. <laughs> and it was, I don't know, it was probably 10, 11 at night. And I looked at results and they go, Oh my gosh, I was the fastest. How did that happen? But it was a great mental boost. But even on day one, I wasn't thinking about I it for me, it wasn't a competition. For me, it was a reunion of me and my past as a competitive swimmer. It was very much like someone who who maybe does the 200 butterfly at a master swimming at the age of 59. You know, ah, can I do it? And if they Finish, they're fine. If they win, great. That was my attitude. And so day two, I was thinking, ah, I know people are just waiting. Because I had heard people say, well, wait for day three. Day three is when champions are made. That's that's really where the rubber hits the road. And I was thinking, well, you know, if I'm X number of minutes ahead in the in the first day, I think they're all banging it. I think they're just using this. Oh, uh, they're safe. Yeah. <laughs> and so day two, I actually swam hard. Oh, okay. Because it was choppy and because they had that backflow issue, I swam hard that day. And then when I finished, again, the results, how Kent gets the results out anyway, I have no idea, but he did get the results. And then my lead had increased a little bit. And I was like, whoa, that's shocking. But it was another huge boost of inspiration, I guess. Again, I wasn't, I wasn't thinking about winning. But then on day three, to be honest, I was thinking, gosh, if I actually just last, I might be in the top three. And that's really cool. And then when we jumped into Apache, it was cold at the start. And it was very, very tranquil. Very tranquil. Glassy, really. And I was thinking, you know what? Now's the time to go hard because at some point Kent had told us and all the veterans had told us that it would be choppy. So for the first three hours, I actually went pretty hard. Hard for me is 80 strokes a minute. So I'm I'm turning over pretty quickly and I'm I'm in four beat a kick and I'm stopping every half an hour, taking some water, um, no food, but just water and and, uh, no special water. No food at all? No, the only time I took food was uh, toward the end of Apache. And there I had, um, I had those Starbursts. And after that, I had some uh, peanut butter and Nutella sandwiches, uh, which tasted really good. I, I don't think it's necessary. I think I was actually just, the Starbursts was, was just a shot of sugar. 
I mean, I, I don't eat candy, but this Starburst, four Starburst, there's this shot of sugar. And I think it really kickstarted me. And then I crashed. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so I figured, okay, I need more carbohydrates as opposed to uh, pure sugar. And so we had some Nutella and peanut butter sandwiches I had prepared in, like, in, a, in a worst case scenario. So I oh, had wow. that. But other than that, you're only feeding on water. Water. And then I, I do take, uh, it's called Quintin. Oh, yeah. Quintin seawater. Seawater. It's filtered yeah. seawater uh, from the Iberian Peninsula. And um, that is really good. I, I've been taking that for years. And it's just these glass vials. And uh, I always take one before every workout and every scar swim. And it's really, um, it's got, you know, all the minerals and vitamins of the deep sea uh, filtered water combined with that, you know, the algae tablets. I, I do take a packet of algae tablets before, and that's actually, uh, it sustains me. I don't get hungry. Now, when I finish, like mentally, I go, huh, I haven't eaten in a while. I should eat. But yeah. when I'm swimming, these two things are really good for me and my body. And again, I was training that way. So it was very good sustainability. And if you think of seaweed and this filtered seawater, combining that with just pure water is perfect. I think defiz Coke, not to, you know, any kind of the commercial electrolyte drinks. I think that combination with seaweed tablets, et cetera, I think that would have been a little, a uh, little iffy if you hadn't prepared, but just pure water. And what I was taking before the swim was a really good mixture for me. And so I wasn't wasting much time. Chris would hand me a, you know, a water bottle and I would suck it down, not much. And then I would, I would continue on. And so on day three, the late increase and like, you know, by day four, I go, ah, I can actually get the scar buckle. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty cool. I haven't won a race or, you know, a trophy or a medal or a ribbon or whatever. And in a long, long, long time. And I was like, ha, huh. I felt like a little kid. Yeah, that's oh. so cool. But at the same time, I'm thinking, I can't screw this up. Yeah, like, right. The pressure. I got to swim like reasonably well. And, but because in the open water, you never know. It's I mean, true. absolutely never. It, it, I could have stopped. Especially in, in the dark, right? <laughs> in the dark. I mean, Chris could have had a problem. I could have had a problem. There's could have been all number of things that, that went wrong. And that's why... On the last day, when I'm like in a kid, I'm like, oh, I can get my blue ribbon. (laughs) I didn't want anything to go wrong. And that's why when Kent, we were not delaying the start, but we were waiting until the sun was going down. I'm thinking, God, I got to swim fast in order to do what I have to do to win this buckle. And so I remember in the um, Roosevelt Lake, as we were at the shoreline and he said, go. I mean, I took off. Cause I really, I knew that we had about an hour, maybe an hour and a half of daylight or at least some light, and then it would turn dark. And so, uh, I think that swim was, I don't, it was over two and a half hours. So it was over half was in the, in the pitch black, uh, at least for me. And then it was, um, it all ended up well, you know, uh, you know, you I finished and, and <laughs> can't hand me the buckle and it was really cool and it just turned out it was it was like this beautiful end to a, a beautiful event that the women's w- uh, winner was Laura uh, Wilhelm from Northern California 
It just so happened that she and I had sat together in the same table in the welcome dinner. Oh, wow. And she and I had shared our common fears and our worries. Here we were two, to be honest, rookies amongst all these veterans. And, you know, she was, she told me how she trained. I told her how I trained and, and we're both thinking, oh my God, you know, this is like beyond our capabilities. And it turns out that, you know, she won the buckle and and I won the buckle. And it was just, you know, when, when I saw her uh, finish, I, I was like, oh, this is so cool that I didn't know her from anybody. And we just so happened to sit on the same table and, and her kayak, she had two kayakers, her kayakers and my kayakers, total rookies. So you had all these rookies sitting together, worrying about just finishing, you know, worrying that was our preparation sufficient. And it, it turned out it was sufficient. She's 40. She's an art teacher and from Redding, California. And, and I saw her swim and I was like, wow, she's going to go places and do things. And, you know, she had her, she has her English channel swim schedule that, and uh, so it's great to see someone like that sort of jump into sport at a, you know, relatively older age, 40 years old, but, you know, relatively speaking. And, um, you know, she came out smiling, her kayakers came out smiling you know, the only bad thing about Scar, the only bad thing is at the end of the four days, it's dark, everybody's tired, and then basically everybody goes home or goes back to the hotel. Yep. <laughs> but, you know, Laura and I were able to uh, share our thoughts uh, about the swim and, and everything. And um, Kent was, I, I get, I don't know how Kent does it. If there is a race director or if there is a person who wants to run a race, they would be well served to visit Kent and be part of his crew because how they handle everything in that swim operationally, logistically, emotionally, sleep deprived, darkness, because again, we swim for the exception of Roosevelt in the light, but Kent is driving kayaks, placing kayaks, arranging buoys in the dark for all the days. And if someone wants to really know like how to handle emergencies, contingencies, unplanned events, like Kent is the man who absolutely understands this is an adventure. It really is an adventure. If people are looking for something really out of the ordinary and fun, something they'll remember for the rest of their lives, adventure, truly adventure. I mean, I read in magazines. I hear podcasts about all these adventure races with runners and rowers and triathletes, et cetera. But man, Scar is absolutely up there in terms of adventure. I'll give you one hint, uh, one indication of the things that that Kent deals with. So Kent uh, rents two large U-Haul trucks to transport the kayaks from point to point. Well, in Apache Lake on day three, the U-Haul truck just stops. It's not working anymore. But Kent has 50% of the kayaks in that U-Haul. If Kent doesn't get those kayaks down to the lake, we're not having the race. So what does Kent do? Fortunately, it's stalled at a, on a hill. Engine's gone. Nothing can do. Kent puts it in neutral and just... <laughs> 
coast down this dirt road. <laughs> that dirt road is something to behold too. <laughs> yes, it is. It is a pot field dirt road that's about this wide. I mean, Kent has like you know, one meter tolerance or else he's tumbling over. And he's in neutral, engine isn't running, and somehow he gets the, the kayaks there. So oh my again, if there's a race organizer, if there's, I mean, it doesn't matter whether it's USA swimming, US master swimming, uh, Waikiki rough water swim, you know, New York open water, man, Kent has to deal with so many issues and he does it with a smile. He does it with professionalism and uh, it's remarkable. So if you want an adventure, like scars it. Yeah. Yep. Will we see you at any more events anytime soon? <laughs> I'm going to do some, uh, some swims. I, I volunteer for the Catalina Channel Swimming Federation. So I wanted to be a, a, an observer. So I'll observe a few swims. But it was funny, in the, in the observer's training, Forrest Nelson and his crew were, were teaching us about Catalina Channel Crossing and the different finish points along the California coast. And he had a great marine chart of the various finish points. And I grew up in Southern California, but I never realized, oh, what a great place to swim. And so it's called the Palos Verdes Peninsula. Depending on how you measure it, it's probably 25 to 30 kilometers around. And so in, the, in that meeting, as I'm volunteering to be an observer, I was thinking, about, I got to swim around that peninsula. Ah. So I'm going to do that in a few, or I'm going to attempt that in a few, few weeks. And um, cool. so, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to do anything. I, I accomplished what I wanted to accomplish. Okay. It, was a, it was a very cool challenge. I mean, I, I turned many, many shades darker <laughs> than the sun um, and it was fun. I did it safely. You know, whether I won the scar buckle or not, I, I finished and that was my goal. I met a lot of really cool people. I saw firsthand how Kent and his uh, volunteers organized this event. Incredible. I checked off all the boxes that I needed to. And then, uh, but because I met all these people, I see it, you know, and I need to volunteer more. And so that's why I'm going to be helping out with the Catalina Channel Crossings. And, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm the low man on the totem pole. So if they need a pace swimmer, I'll jump in. If they need a kayaker, I'll get the paddle. They need somebody to count strokes or, or mark. That's, that's what I'll do. Very cool. Thank you so much for sharing with us, Stephen. I appreciate it. No, my pleasure. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you were inspired by even just a moment of this story, please share it with a friend. You never know what might push someone out of their comfort zone so that they can find out what they're capable of. And please leave a review with your podcast provider. It truly helps others discover the raw and honest stories of these amazing endurance swimmers. Thanks for listening.